Thank you for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. everybody it is u.s open week on the silver club podcast and we have colin back in the house after the great spring semester at yale and your team did really good colin congrats thank you steve it was a thrill yeah so so tell tell us you know kind of give us the 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 411 on what on what happened in the spring and you, i know you made it all the way to the the regionals there which you hosted at uh, yale golf club there your home course it was a it was a roller coaster of a spring semester. Uh, we kicked it off at the end of February. We had a lovely weekend at a hoopie, and we we had a one day thirty six hole head to head against Georgia Southern, an excellent uh, golf team. Uh, their coach Carter Collins is a friend of mine, and and it was uh, it, we got a, we got to see what a really good team looks like. They kind of ran up the score on us, but it was there was a great weekend of camaraderie, and we played morning four ball matches and, and then eight singles matches in the afternoon. Yeah, and that was a that was a prep for. Uh, we were very fortunate to play. Wake Forest invited us to their to their invitational at Piners Number Two in this elite field, and we struggled. But uh, the, that golf course was just such a challenge for us. It was windy. It's still too early in the semester. It was the first time in my 12 years or 13 years that we ever scheduled a uh, a tournament prior to spring break. And our result, I think, indicated why I think we waited until then. Yeah, you guys. We were take- yeah, you played a lot yeah. of great golf course. Obviously, a lot of great golf courses. and um... Yeah, and then so we, we, we went out west. We had a beautiful spring break to Cali. We played in the tournament at La Costa, hosted by uh, San Diego, and then had a few days up at Monterey playing for fun. And then the serious golf was in April and uh, Masters weekend was, was the Princeton Invitational. We won there s- seven times in the previous 10 years and we, we struggled out of the blocks, but uh, we hit our stride the following week at the Yale Spring Invitational. Uh, we had a, we had a thrilling come from behind win in the, in the second round of a 36 hole one day, gave us all the momentum we needed to go to, to uh, century for the Ivy championship in challenging conditions, windy, cold greens, rolling 30 on the stint meter. Uh, and, uh, we took a 10 shot lead after round one and we, we held on to it wire to wire finish. And, uh, got a, got a shout out my, my freshman, Ben Carpenter, two weeks prior to him holding up the individual prize. Uh, he wasn't even in the lineup at Princeton. He wasn't even the Indy, uh, and then the following weekend when we won at, at Yale, he was the sixth guy and he was surging. We put him in the fifth spot and lo and behold, he, he, he's Ivy individual champion. Uh, pretty thrilling. And so it's always been a career goal of mine. It was the third time I took a team to regionals where Yale was, I mean, we, we took a team to the Ivies where if we won, we'd, we'd be home for the regionals. Uh, in 2010, we had a hard, we had a, Heartbreaking loss at Baltusrol by a few strokes. And then in 2015, we were the best team in the league all year. And we just had a complete letdown at Saucon Valley. And so we didn't mention it once all spring. Uh, <laughs> never n- n- never touched the money. Uh, we weren't playing well enough uh, until the end. So, But it was, a, it was a dream come true to be home for the regionals. And, and we were pretty excited. 
regrettably, we just didn't, we, we didn't play well. Uh, I was, I was fascinated to, to see the great teams come, what they were going to shoot at Yale. Um, and man, do they, they know how to golf, uh, Wake yeah. Forest won and Texas tech and, and our, and our friends from Georgia Southern, uh, were sent to that regional. We were thrilled. Um, and they, they, they advanced as the eight seed, uh, really strong, really strong. So, so many uh, great, so, yeah, so many great players and, in college golf right now, certainly. I mean, there's been there's been a lot of things though. I know you've uh, you've been super busy with the coaching, so uh, you know I've I've carried the torch here on the on the pod. But it's really great to you know get a chance to talk to you about all these things that have happened in the world of golf. Certainly, uh, the professional golf scene, the men's professional golf scene, has been kind of turned on its head. Uh, let's what, what's what's your take on this whole this whole live thing right now? Fascinating. Um, I wish there was a uh, different entity or person or country uh, bankrolling it so that these players could take a principled stand uh, because they're not wrong. The, the PGA Tour has not been it's, – it's sort of guilty of antitrust behavior. Um, I do think there will have to be some type of reconciliation that maybe eventually uh, to be on the PGA Tour, you have to play 18 tour events a year. But – um, the idea that you can't sort of spend off weeks competing when and where you wish is sort of it's uh, uh, it, 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 it doesn't make sense. It's not fair to the guys. Um, and it's a shame that it's sort of that they've held, they've held such a hard line that they've almost sort of failed to come out of this with a sort of a better compromise along the way. Uh, I, I get all the I, I get suddenly all these sort of self-righteous journalists getting to stand up and ask questions about the Saudi Arabian regime. I guess my, my joke, my question is, unless show me a Facebook post that you were um, against the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia two years ago, or you show me a history of sort of righteous indignation against Saudi Arabia that you're suddenly now having it because these guys are taking money uh, to do what they wish to do. I can't, can you blame a 40 something year old pro who, who doesn't necessarily want to spend 35 weeks of the year, you know, chasing the grind and being away from home. True. Yeah. There's certainly a lot to think of, man. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like if, if somebody offered me, you know, 30, 50, hundred million dollars to go play golf. But, you know, I, I think just watching this, uh, you know, the live, from London this last week in comparison to the PGA tour, I'll take the alternate stances as you, you know, it's like you, you think about the uh, you know, how the event came off and, and from the, the, the viewer's point of view, obviously you only have 48 players on the inside of the ropes, hitting the golf shots. They're making the money, but like did the putt that Charles Schwartzel made on the last hole, you know, for 4.75 million, including the, the team purse uh, aspect of it. Did, did anybody really care about that putt? I mean, I look at that in contrast to what happened to the Canadian Open. And, and you know, the, the, you know, you take the history of that event, the 111th playing of the RBC Canadian Open, and you have Rory McIlroy, you had Justin Thomas, and you had Tony Finau in the final group. They're coming down the stretch. They all played great. Rory McIlroy shoots 62 to take the title. And there's, there's you know, the, all the, the fans enveloping or surrounding the green on that 18th hole in that atmosphere. You know, from a, from a viewer's point of view and a, a golf fan's point of view, 
the, the PGA Tour was far and above a, a better product as far as that goes, in my opinion. Oh, no question. You're absolutely right. Listen, the, the, the LIV golf product doesn't, uh, to quote, I think, Graham McDowell, doesn't represent the grind. And I agree. It's, I didn't watch a single shot. And it's a, and uh, it, it hold it can't it doesn't yet hold a candle to the to the PGA Tour, um, and I'm with you and 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 it's untethered from react from economic reality. It's just <laughs> yeah, some giant loss leading kind of yeah. And is it sports washing and and is and absolutely I don't I don't I don't support the, the I don't support Saudi Arabia or or the venture, I, I, I do support a player's right to choose um, or to cash in on a career that might, they've sort of spent their career building a reputation and now there's money being thrown at them. And there's a funny line from the movie, The Big Short. I remember um, when Dr. Michael Burry is trying to buy these sort of, trying to short, you know, the housing market at Goldman Sachs. And they said, you know, Dr. Burry, this is Wall Street. If you offer us free money, we're going to take it. <laughs> I would say to the... To the tour pros, like you're going to offer someone $125 million, don't be surprised. Don't don't hate the player if they take it. Oh, <laughs> I yeah, mean, yeah, it's, um, it's... but you're right. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not. It, there was nothing competitive about that event. There was nothing serious about it. It was a extremely weak field, and and it's. I agree. I I'm just. I wish the tour had handled. They, they could have. They should have been more accommodating to the players um sooner yeah, they're gonna have it, to it, it's uh yeah it look it's a really strange situation it's um you know I, i'll side on the side of the tour for sure i mean i'm i'm I, you know i love my pga tour live uh uh commentary that i'm able to do and watch these great players week in and week out so i'm gonna i'm gonna take that side uh and uh you know maybe we can agree to disagree on a couple things but yes it's uh it's a it's a very uh, interesting time in the golfing world, no doubt. But let's let's shift gears real quick. U.S. Open right on our doorstep this week. The Country Club. We're going to have some of those guys who played overseas this last week come over here to the Country Club and play this great classic layout. Uh, it's been 34 years since they played a U.S. Open there, Colin. Why has it been so long? You're right. They should have had the 2013 U.S. Open on the centennial of Francis Wemet's victory. But David Faden believed that it, it, it had sort of lost, it had failed to keep its sort of the, the modern U.S. Open kind of infrastructure expectations probably were too great for it. Um, perhaps it wasn't lengthened. It was too short. Either way, mm. uh, it definitely missed an opportunity. It should be, a, it should be in a regular cycle. It had it in 1913 and then it had it, it had it on the the 50th anniversary and the 75th anniversary, and um, this is the this is the origin of the game. The the Francis Wimet story, country one of the five founding clubs, beautiful rocky outcropping course that takes you on a journey. Uh, uh, elements of quirk, uh, sacred ground, sacred golf ground in America. Uh, yeah. You can't tell the story of golf in America without telling the story of uh, the events at the country club. Even just even just this coming September is the hundredth anniversary of of uh, Jess Sweetser winning the U.S. Amateur there, then a, a Yale undergraduate. Um, so this will be this will be a great week. The demand is crazy. The tickets are the the secondary markets are expensive. 
there's going to be super, there's going to be tremendous enthusiasm. I guess you, I guess you could say it's, we had the, the Ryder cup was in 99, the last yep. sort of professional major of some kind. And then of course the, there was the amateur that same year in 2013 when Fitzpatrick won. But uh, I think people are going to be, this is why you follow golf. This is why you, any major week is thrilling. Serious golfers can't consume enough golf media. Uh, and it's great to be in the Northeast again in a June Father's Day weekend, U.S. Open, you know, classic old school U.S. Open setting, with gorgeous clubhouse and its tradition. It's going to be exciting. Who do you like? It is. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I guess the greens are on the smaller side, you know, maybe just a little larger than a greens at Pebble Beach, for example, maybe about 43 or 4,400 square feet on average. So that's, that's pretty small. Um, yeah. You gotta, you gotta take somebody whose iron game is really sharp. Um, you know, Cameron Smith been, been really sharp with, uh, with his iron game. He's, you're going to miss a lot of greens when they're that small too. So you got to be able to really scramble and get up and down quite a bit. Uh, you know, so that's that's going to be it's going to bode well for something like that. Scotty Scheffler, uh, man, he's as hot as anybody on the planet right now. JT, Rory, they're 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 playing really well. Um, so yes, it will uh, you know it, it will really be a, a wonderful test. I think the you know the players will be the stars. The golf course itself will will be the star as well, uh, and uh, you know showcasing this this really. You know, fantastic layout that's had so yeah you're right so much great history who's your pick well very quickly i wanted to say you know it's what's interesting about the layout is that it's not something that you know the, even the the members play routinely uh in some ways this golf course this championship routing which is a composite of the two courses the the main 18 and the primrose it's like brigadoon it only briefly exists maybe two or three days of the year um so it's it's an interesting debate is whether that that course should even be like ranked as such or uh you know it'll be cool i'm glad they're in fact this is the first time that this configuration is the first of its kind to include the holes they're including uh previous us opens and even the Ryder cup didn't include this that little drop shot par three yeah 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 um used to walk past it I, I that's a nice addition but as for the play i i i love you, you go you have to go with people who've who've they've foreshadowed really good play in recent weeks um wouldn't be surprised to see someone like uh max homa out there uh or or the guys you mentioned i mean just recent winners um, always seem to be ready to show up. And I, Scotty Scheffler is just someone you have to root for. You just can't help yourself. I mean, it just, I love, I love the, I love what, I love his game. And I love that he's, he's sort of had to patiently wait a few years. It's come to this. You sometimes, you can be a phenom at the junior level and the college level. And then you, you take your lumps for a few years. And then here you are in your mid twenties and you're the number one player in the world. And you've, you've won majors and you're, you know, away you go yeah um, no question i i enjoy watching him play and uh and then there's always you do love a good dark horse in the u.s open someone who's going to kind of come out of nowhere i'd say uh, one player don't don't uh, sleep on you know why does webb simpson feel like he could just be just webb simpson could just come out of nowhere and and, and be the guy great ball striker okay putter <laughs> it seems to me like he's a i throw him in a 
go with a dark horse pool. Yeah, he could. I, you know, being that this is one of those courses that uh, the players really don't have any experience on. I mean, I think it's pretty much a wide open field uh, in so many ways. And yeah, you're right. It's it's um, yeah, we're we're gonna be able to see uh, a lot of great golf up there. Uh, speaking of some great golf, before we get to our our this awesome podcast with Curtis Strange, I can't wait for everybody to listen to this. Uh, we had the Silver Club. We had uh, we were up in the uh, Northeast area, the Boston, the Rhode Island area. Recently, we played Boston Golf Club. We played Wanamoisett Country Club that Andrew Green just redid, and we also played a nearby Seth Rayner that co-hosted the 1995 U.S. Amateur Stroke Play called Wanamatonomy. And uh, really, really awesome event. We had uh, Benoit Hugo win the silver medal. And Craig Vanderlaan won our Scotch division as well as our Evans division. So uh, congrats to those members of our society. Uh, Boston Golf Club was unreal. Uh, We played that. It was kind of our fun day. Got to play with Boomer Eric, the golf professional there. And uh, members had a really fun day. And then Juana Moisett was really the star, without question. Um, Andrew Green did a really cool restoration there, really some really fun greens expansions. I know you've seen Juana Moisett before. Just kind of got the bunkers back where the longer hitters hit it. They host the Northeast Amateur for many, many years, and uh, the Northeast Amateur played uh, next week, just after the U.S. Open week here. So Juana Moisett was in prime shape. Our members really loved it. And uh, we're going to be moving on to another great uh, venue, uh, Valhalla and Victoria National, also next week for another event. So uh, we're having a ton of fun traveling the country, playing all these great courses uh, for the society. And Colin, I hope we, you know, maybe we get to see you in the, uh, you know, at one of these events that we that we have. Maybe we'll have a live podcast or something. I would love it. I'd love to come see you. By the way, Juan Moisted Acre for Acre, the most. Of- the most efficient golf course, the, the greatest course on a hundred, fewer than a hundred acres in America. Fascinating routing study of the routing. Um, and you're right about uh, boomers. Boomers terrific. And Boston golf club is just mm-hmm. excellent. It has, it has an entirely different complexion than the sort of bought, you know, the other courses that sort of surrounding Boston. It isn't, it has that sort of, almost like pine barrens kind of texture to it very yeah. cool place yeah we got to experience i mean gil hance that was an original gil hance there at boston golf club uh wanam autonomy was a seth rayner and then wanam moisset uh was a donald ross so got to hit all three of the uh some of the great architects that have ever lived and that's kind of kind of what we're all about but uh but colin can't wait to get to this uh podcast and it's U.S. Open week. We will be glued to the television, watching uh, from the country club up there at Brookline. And uh, happy Father's Day to everybody, and uh, especially to you, Colin. It's really great to catch up you with too. you again. Thank you, Steve, as always. Keep up the great work, man. All right, Colin. But before we get to this great podcast with Curtis Strange, I just wanted to thank the sponsors of the Silver Club, the Turtleson Company. Such fantastic apparel. They do some great custom work on all of our event logos for our majors, some really special stuff, some fine fabrics, some great customer service, most importantly. Check out turtleson.com. Putt view books. If you want to know the carry distances over bunkers, the heat maps on the greens where all the breaks are, check out puttviewbooks.com slash SCGS. 
and save $20 on your next order with Puttview Books. The Two Underbrand, the creators of the Joey Pouch, protecting all of your most important assets. Check out twounder.com. That's two, U-N-D-R dot com. And finally, Torch Eyewear. Lewis Wellen and his whole team at Torch have developed a brand of athletic and stylish glasses you can wear on the boat, on the golf course, wherever you want. Check out Torch Eyewear at torcheyewear.com. Okay, let's get to this week's podcast. I hope you enjoy this with Curtis Strange. Okay, well, we have had great golf instructors, great broadcasters in the world, and now today we have our first World Golf Hall of Famer joining the Silver Club podcast. Welcome, Curtis Strange. Thank you, Steve. Nice to be here. Well, really appreciate it. You know, it was nice to run into you. Uh, we did some work for Fox back uh, with the USGA stuff uh, back a few years ago. And yeah, so we so we saw each other at Southern Hills. I mean, what a great golf course there that Gil Hance redid and a great champion in Justin Thomas. My goodness, uh, you're exactly right. And uh, be able to go to the PGA and, and be a part of the ESPN team. And just for everybody listening, you know, when you go to a when you're on a team for many, many years, you become a team. You actually do. And that's what makes this whole thing work. And um, to see everyone and, and, and be part of a, trying to have a common goal to bring this, 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 this uh, great championship to the, to the viewers, it's, it's uh, really interesting. But anyway, uh, Southern Hills was absolutely stunning, I thought. I played there in, in two PGAs in the U.S. Open, Steve. And, you know, I thought it was nice. I didn't have a real opinion of it. Uh, in August, we used to play there, and the greens weren't very good, and hot August weather in Tulsa. But in May, I must say, with all the work that Gil Hans did and the membership and the club, the golf course was absolutely just unbelievable. Uh, it was, of course, you could play every day the rest of your life and enjoy every round, and that's kind of my measuring stick. Uh, but JT, Justin Thomas, you know, needed some help. He was seven back, and when you're seven back, you always need a little help from the leader. He got it on the last hole, but he doesn't take away from the great term, great last round he played. No, there's no question about that. And uh, Will Zalatoris, uh, a fellow Demon Deacon, just like you, uh, uh, almost got it done again. We're gonna we're gonna get his puttings all situated. Uh, let, let's talk about though your your college days really quick. Uh, I'm lucky enough to live in Winston Salem, North Carolina now, and play out of the old town club. You've had uh, a lot of great time back in the, the mid seventies there uh, at Wake Forest and, you know, teammates like Jay Haas, uh, you, your team was off the charts, uh, off the charts. Good. You won by 33 strokes in the 1975 NCAA finals. And uh, they, they made the, a, a rule after that where they had to count the uh, lowest scores each day, not the lowest scores for all 72 holes. You guys really, you guys changed the way NCAA really <laughs> did, made their uh, championship. Well, I don't know if it was us, but uh, they did. They, we used to play every tournament four out of five for the total aggregate seven or 54 holes. And now it's four to five each day. So uh, it does, you know, it, it brings the field closer together. It equalizes. And I'm not sure if that's good or bad, but that's the way it is. Uh, but when we played it, it was different. And, uh, you know, we just – back then, you just needed consistency. You needed depth. Um, and that's what Wake, being 
back in the 70s, Steve, there wasn't as many great golf schools as there are now. And what I mean by great golf school, it just means that there's so many good kids out there, they have to go somewhere. And so uh, Wake was, was it. Coach Haddock had a good group of us. We were young, cocky, and, and not scared. And, and uh, we got along really well, which is key. Yeah. And uh, we, but we were disciplined in that Coach Haddock, oh, how do I say this? Uh, you know, I hung on every word that he said. Uh, he was a father figure to me, and he was uh, everything I, he said I did, and uh, which turned out okay. Yeah, it sure did turn out okay. You finished in the top 10 in all your 25 collegiate uh, matches and finished in the top five in 21 of those. You won nine individual events. Uh, what what a time you had here, and it was uh, – what, what do you remember about the Old Town Club in particular? And discuss a little bit about what you remember about the golf course and – and have you been back to it since? Uh, we go back, you know, quite often. Uh, we have our Wake Forest Pro-Am every couple, two or three years. And, you know, we go back to, to support the program, but we go back to see our old friends that we don't get a chance to see often enough anymore. Teammates, uh, fraternity brothers, that type of thing. But Old Town was a great training ground for college, talented, raw talent. Uh, in that uh, never have a, a level lie out there, slopey greens, <laughs> learn how to control your spin on the greens uh, because of the slope, uh, blind shots, chipping, bunker play. It was just, I was a big hitter when I went to college and it was perfect for me in that it taught me how to hit controlled 150 yard shots in. I was a big high spinner and yeah. Back in the old days with the spinny ball and the uh, the wood woods and steel shafts. But, uh, you know, it was a great training ground for me. And then when you play against three or four of the best players in the country every day, I mean, what greater atmosphere is that? So uh, we, we learned from each other. Uh, we talked about the golf swing nonstop. Uh, we were all, I think our golf IQ was good on our team. Very good, which helps. But, uh, you know, Wake was... When I was in high school, I didn't travel much out of the state too much because my dad had passed early on and mom couldn't afford me traveling. Plus, back in the day, you didn't travel too much. Right. So Lanny Watkins came up to me at the state amateur oh, a year and a half before I was leaving high school and said, we want to offer you a scholarship. You know, the Arnold Palmer scholarship, full rod. And I said, where do I sign? Well, what was the point in your amateur career and your collegiate career that you said, I'm, I'm ready to turn pro. I'm ready to go and, and go out and, and challenge the best players in the world. You know, it's, I've been asked that often. And especially when you speak to young professionals or kids, and I don't think there's ever a, a, a definitive moment like that. Um, I mean, you, you certainly went through it. Um, I think it's just a graduation of improvement. Uh, after my freshman year, I played really, really well. My sophomore year, I played really, really well. And I seriously considered leaving after my second year at Wake. Uh, but I didn't want to leave my teammates. My, my, the, the two top players on the team, with, and David Thor and, and Jay Haas, with me, uh, were uh, a year ahead of me. So I certainly didn't want to leave them. So I stayed a third year. And I started to spin my wheels a little bit. Uh, I wasn't. I knew I was going to leave after three years. So uh, scholastically, I was 
not in it. Uh, I was all into my golf <laughs> and, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't the healthiest, uh, atmosphere for me, my third year, just cause I, you know, I was anxious to go. Uh, I was impatient with my game. I didn't play as well because mm-hmm. I knew what was going to happen in six or eight months. So I, I, I knew then, uh, that after three years I was gone with Jay and David and I turned pro and, uh, after the NCAA that year. And it was disappointing too, because we didn't win that year. We won my freshman and sophomore year. And I think we were all uh, looking forward to the future, David and Jay and myself. And uh, were we in it? Yes, we were in it, but were we in it like we were freshmen? Probably not. And that was really disappointing. And, uh, but we all left. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we had the best three years of my life and, uh, we had great times. We had great team, great coach, and in uh, uh, success. The college game and the college times go by way too quickly. Um, so you jumped out on tour, one in nineteen seventy nine. The nineteen eighties were really the the decade of Curtis Strange, though. And I, I really want to get into the U.S. Open in particular. You won your first uh, U.S. Open at the Country Club at Brookline in that great playoff over Nick Faldo. And uh, the, the event is, is right on our doorstep now. But uh, just kind of going back to what got you, uh, just looking at all the victories that you had in the early 80s, um, you know, it just seemed like your, your career and your professional game just kept escalating all the way to that climax at the end of that decade. You know, it's, it's uh, I, had this, I had this love, to work and to improve. Um, a lot of that was uh, out of necessity because I had no other options. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed my practice in the range. And I realized when I first came out, unlike the kids of today, they're so polished and so uh, ready for the tour. I didn't feel like I was. And so I came out and and worked hard and didn't play well for a year and a half or so. Started to see some improvement, started to gain a little confidence. But uh, a a dear friend of mine who, well, Hale Irwin, told me early on in my rookie year, we had dinner one night. He said, keep your eyes and ears open, your mouth shut and work. And, you know, it's it's the way, it's the old school way, but it's the right way. And I did just that. And I improved uh it was there was bumps in the road there was sleepless nights uh sarah i was married with sarah we were married at 21 and 20 Hmm. she was right on the road with me and uh, driving the tour and so you know she had to put up with my mess (laughs) Uh, but uh we uh steadily improved and you know finally won at the end of 79 at pensacola and i can't tell you i can't tell the listeners the relief that not that I did it, but that I somehow in some little way belong now. Yep. And I've, I, I feel like I got some, I, I uh, got some respect from the Hale Irwin's the real world, which you had to earn respect back then. Yeah. And because of play and, and your manner and the way in which you went about your work. So in an eighties was good. The eighties were good, but the eighties started off good in 80. I really played well, uh, improved a great deal from T to green. Um, and, uh, 
kind of just went on. And as you know, in this game, it's, it's not about physical ability when you get to a certain level. It's about belief. It's about confidence. The, the belief that you can put it to that back right hole location and you're the only guy on, in the terms that can do that, that type stuff. You know, the five-footer on the last hole or the, or the 20-footer to win, you know, there's an inner cockiness that uh, through being there enough that, that you feel that, um, that gets you over the hump and, and, and enables you to be comfortable on that stage. And, you know, this is all the psychological part of it that I enjoyed learning and, uh, because it's a big part of it. Where did all your confidence come from, though? I mean, you know, when I think of Curtis Strange, I think when the world thinks of Curtis Strange, they think of this really hard-nosed, fierce competitor. Where, where do you think that came from? Uh, you know, you don't, you can't manufacture it. So I guess it was, you know, from my mother and my dad. Um, I planned all sports growing up is a big, big part of that. Um, I kind of felt like, I was the guy that I wanted the last, I wanted the ball and take the last shot. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know where that comes from. I don't know. You know, I'd rather take a charge. I played all basketball through high school. I'd rather take a charge than, than score the easy layup. And it was just kind of me. And, uh, and coach, my high school basketball coach, who became a dear, dear friend and somebody who instilled that work ethic and discipline and, Everything you can imagine, he was like a second father to me, just like Coach Haddock was at Wake uh, after Dad died. Uh, you know, he, he admired that. And I just think playing sports, uh, developing your body and your mind uh, was good for the golf game. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have a sibling twin, twin brother, Alan. I'm sure, uh, you know, you guys probably pushed each other a little bit. Uh, absolutely. And that's, you know, I'm glad you brought it up because I didn't think about it. But when you when you're in the same bedroom and you grow up together with a guy who's more hard nosed than you are and more stubborn than you are and you compete, you have a you have a, a, a buddy there that you compete against every single day and everything you ever do uh, instills a lot of that in you. And, you know, he was the quarterback uh, pitcher in high school and then eventually went back to golf, played the tour for two years, but, you know, hell of an athlete, you know, hard nosed competitor. And, and if you weren't, you got your ass beat by him every day. <laughs> now the players are, you know, you win uh, a couple hundred grand for finishing 10th and it's a very different mentality. I know you, you won when you won that us open back. Uh, and I want to get into that now. I mean, you won 14 PGA tour events before that U S open. You obviously ultimately win that U S open. You won 180,000 <laughs> for that particular event. Mo- the money has gotten uh, pretty crazy over time. Hasn't it? You know, Steve, it was never, ever about the money. Uh, we were doing fine. I was paying the bills. Uh, it wasn't like today, but it was always about, you know, the U S open. When you went that week, it was about, you know, the marathon of the week, uh, the the tough toughness set up. Uh, it was it was all about the week. It was never about the money. And then when you finally break through um, and, and do something like that, it's it, it's it, I still to this day have a tough time putting it into words because, you know, as 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 kids on the golf course. And again, you went through the same thing. It's, 
you dream about things like that. And my dad played in six U.S. Open. So the U.S. Open was the tournament. And it's always the tournament because it's the biggest event we can play in as an American player. But it was a big event because he was a good player that played in U.S. Open. So, you know, just to play at Southern Hills was my first U.S. Open was overwhelming and realized I had to improve a great deal to be able to compete at that level. But when you finally get to that point and, and pull through and, you know, win, it's, it's, it's just hard to put into words that this, you know, the dream does come true and all that hard work does pay off and all that support from your wife and family and friends does pay off. Uh, and that's what you do afterwards. You share it with all of them. Um, you share that trophy, you share the, the exhilaration of, of, of winning. Take us through that moment at Brookline, kind of if, if you can kind of give us some of the cliff notes for that week, but then talk about that playoff you had with with Nick Faldo and, and getting to that playoff. I know there was a really key moment. I mean, the 72nd hole, you made a great up and down from the front greenside bunker, uh, but you had finished third and tied for fourth within the last uh, four years prior to that win. You were knocking on the door in that as other as well as other majors, but that particular one, uh, take us through a bit of that week and what you remember about that week at the country club. Well, I'd have never, I'd have never played as well at the country club if I hadn't had those close finishes in the U S open prior, because it's, it's such a learning curve on getting on that stage and learning how your body reacts to that, that pressure, learning, learning how your mind works when there's a lot of noise outside uh, and I don't mean noise, noise. I mean, just noise from within. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, the, the dream of, of winning that championship. And uh, so, so then when you get to the country club and you feel like you're comfortable on the stage and I just won, already won twice in 88. Um, I was playing really, really well, but you still have to go out and execute. You still have to do your work, be prepared, be rested and then go execute. And, People ask me all the time, what, did you feel extra pressure? And I said, not really at all. I was anxious. Anxious is a good thing. But pressure, no, uh, because, you're, because you know you've done everything possible, and it's just now about execution. And you feel like you can get it done. And so you, you go to the week, and you get off to a good start, and you – like any other tournament, you have to let it come to you. Build momentum from the first hole in the first round. You shoot a good, solid first round. Now, let's build momentum for the second round. We have momentum from the first round. And I shot a really good score, 68 or something, I don't remember. And uh, was like one back or so. And it's exactly where you'd want to be. No, you, no, I take that back. You'd like to be five ahead. But I was one <laughs> or two back. You know, don't tell me you don't. You always want to be behind. That's such a crock. I want to be ahead. There you go. But, uh, but I got, uh, I was tied. I believe I was tied after three rounds. And you, you had the and, solo and, lead actually by one over Faldo okay. Gilder and Simpson. Yeah. And so now, now the game was on, um, as simple as that. You got one round to go and you, uh, this is what you've been training for and working for your, your whole life. And, uh, and then I, I played well and, and looked like I was going to do well and, and I didn't finish well. So now we had to go one more round. And you know what? It's you have to you have to forget about the three putt at 17 mm -hmm. now 
because you can't let that, you cannot let that negative thought go through dinner that night. You've got to regroup and play another good solid round of golf and, um, and get it done. It's the biggest, it'll be the biggest round of your life, just like the day before was. But anyway, on the 72nd hole, yeah. I put it in the bunker yeah. and I had to get it up and yeah. down. And, you know, it's, it was not a difficult shot, but the situation made it extremely tough. And you get in there and, you know, you take a deep breath. I mean, there's no tricks to it. It's you take a deep breath and you say, okay, you dumb son of a gun, be a man for once in your life, you know, that kind of stuff <laughs> and get in there and get it done and just hit the shot that you've hit a million times and uh, let your body react, let your hand and eye coordination react to it. And, and it turned out okay. Yeah. Which, turned- which, which was not the best shot I ever hit in my life, but it was the most important shot I ever hit in my life because it got me in the playoff. Right. And it wasn't just with anybody, though. It was with Nick Faldo. Uh, Nick Faldo was really, you know, in his prime right there, you know, in that mid to late 80s moment. I mean, your thought process that you remember, you know, because it's 18 hole playoff. It's not like it is now where it's a aggregate playoff. Uh, You had a lot of golf holes to, you know, to separate yourself. And ultimately you did by four. But what, what sort of things did you, you know, remember about kind of going mano a mano versus Faldo? Uh, it was a windy day. So we both knew nobody. I didn't, I didn't think anybody was going to shoot a low score, uh, at the country club, small greens, tight fairways, wind. Um, it was about kind of grinding that day. Uh, Nick was formidable. He was the current open champion. Um, I didn't care at all. I mean, I kind of, I, you know, all you can do is what you can do. You know, I can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not returning his serve. So, uh, <laughs> You know, you do the you do the best you can, and uh, it 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 had a big swing over on thirteen. I made a big putt for birdie. He missed a putt for par, and I kind of just had to finish after that. But uh, you know, it was just a great week at the Country Club, was which is a which is just a historic, old, traditional golf course at the U.S. Open against the Open champion. I just it, it, I couldn't write a better script. Um, I'm glad I came out on top. I'm glad I didn't write, had to write the other script, but, uh, you know, to go back this year, uh, I'm going to go up there for a couple of days. It's, um, it's long overdue. It's been 34 years for the U S open to be at the country club. Yeah, for sure. A lot of, uh, it's a small property and all the infrastructure required to run a U.S. open. Uh, you know, I did, I did read a story. If you wouldn't mind telling this story real quick about, uh, about Alan, your brother, um, and, and coming in, coming into the playoff, like, you know, trying to fight all the traffic and well, you know, he was trying to come and see you in that Monday playoff. Can you, uh, can you tell us that story real quick? Well, I'll give you the, the short version because <laughs> if Alan's had a couple of beers that last for about 30 minutes, okay. It's, it gets embellished just a bit, but anyway, he's never showed up at a golf tournament to watch me ever in his life. Cause he never wanted to change anything. He played the tour. For a couple of years, he got it. We talk on the phone all the time, but he just didn't want to go. Well, he got talked into going Monday morning to the playoff with my uncle Jordan Ball, who's a hell of a player in his own right, and two friends. He got talked into it after many phone calls. They came up that morning. They're driving to the country club at about 1030. They get a mile from the gate, and they realize they have no credentials to get in. But 
they have the identical twin brother who we really do look alike back then. So they put him behind the wheel of this go to hell rent a car they had. And uh, he goes up and says, hey, how you doing? He's, hey, Curtis, how you doing? Hey, kick his ass today. Good luck. I play well. You know, that kind of, and so they go right on through the gate <laughs> with no problem at all. And uh, Alan's got shorts on and a golf shirt. So they go to the USJ office. They get credentials. So now they get out there at about 11.15. And Jordan, my uncle, and Alan are a bit parched, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so they start drinking a few beers. And so now, being the identical twin brother, I get up there about 1 o'clock. They've already had three or four beers. Everybody, can you imagine that it started to congregate around the clubhouse and putting green? Hey, look at Curtis over there. He's drinking a bud before <laughs> I play, just like I do, you know? <laughs> so, so it was – it was really funny. And so I see him right before we go off, which is about two or two thirty, And, you know, we shook hands and, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a great thrill to have him there. Uh, it was a bigger thrill that he walked inside the ropes the last nine holes with Jerry Pate, the ABC on course reporter at the yeah, time yeah. with Bob Rosberg. Uh, he, try to yell my name when we won and Sarah and I were walking through the people right off the green and he was right there and I didn't hear him so they left mm. and some people asked why did you leave and he says because he didn't need me now mm. and so and there really was not much for him to do so they got on the airplane my phone rang that night in the hotel about 1 a.m and it was Alan so we talked for an hour or so but uh it was a great thrill. We've had a lot of stories and had a lot of beers over the memories of uh, that day. Wow. Wow. Well, that's really cool. And, and, you know, you've been really gracious with your time. I just go, want to just dive into your broadcasting real quick. Um, you've certainly done a lot of broadcasting over time, not playing many on the champions tour at all, but uh, you've been a great broadcaster, ABC, ESPN, um, all over the place. But w one thing that was really, that really stuck out to me when we worked for Fox, uh, back at Shinnecock in 2018, and you were, you were on the call on the ground with, uh, Brooks Kepka when he won back to back titles. And certainly if anybody knows their golf history, only Ben Hogan, yourself, and Brooks Kepka had successfully defended their titles since World War II. What was that moment like for you? And was it, you know, just uh, maybe a, a, I don't know, from the outside, is a very surreal moment for me watching it and seeing kind of this, uh, this connection between you two. You know, Steve, the, the TV gig for 25 years now uh, uh, has been just such a, 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 just such a thrill to be a part of, such a learning curve, as you know. Um, it's, it's a whole lot more difficult to do than people think. And we practice, we work, uh, you learn every day you get out there and, um, you know, I've been the analyst, I've been the whole announcer and now I was on course at, at Shinnecock and, and I actually must say being on course, uh, some people might think it's a, a demotion. It's, it's, it's the, the job that I enjoyed the most because you're out amongst the players and uh anyway so i'm in the last group actually it was not the last group because those four players tied to the lead at shinnecock and kepka and dj were in the second to last group tony finau and daniel berger i believe mm -hmm. 
were in the last group. So my producer says, we think the winner more than likely will come out of the second last group. Curtis, you go with them. And so um, we get around. And I told in the meeting the night before, I told Azinger and Joe Buck and the team, I said, you know, don't be bringing up this back-to-back thing to me. I don't want to be part of the storyline. I just want to do my job and let Brooks, if he wins, let him be the story. So we go along. Brooks is going to win, it looks like. And we get on the 16th, 15th or 16th tee. And Azinger says, well, Curtis, is about time to talk about back-to-back and what this guy's thinking and how he's feeling. Is he thinking at all about winning last year and this year? I said, well, Paul, thanks a lot for bringing that up um, and, and made comment. But, uh, you know, you don't think about back-to-back when you're on the golf course. That's just something that is a result of you playing well two years in a row. Um, when I had a chance to interview him, uh, which I wish I'd have had a whole lot more practice doing because I wasn't very good at that. But when I had a chance to interview him, uh, he was he was terrific. And I asked him, do you, do you know, realize what this means? And he said, no, not really. And I wasn't thinking quick enough. I should have said, well, give it time. Give it 25 years. And the older you get, the more it will mean to you. Yeah, that was. I thought that was very. Uh, I don't know. I just. Yeah, I just thought that was a, a wonderful moment in in sport right there, and a great, great coincidence. Uh, this podcast really are the members of our golfing society, the Silver Club Golfing Society, are all single digit handicaps. They're all excellent players and always looking to get better. Looking back at your career, if there was one or two things that you really focused on to try to improve your game. What are one or two things that you would advise our players to really focus on with their game? Well, I mean, it's, we all know that the better you get at the game, and if you're a single digit like your guys are, you're incredibly gifted and, and good players, solid players. Uh, it's a small, small number of players in this country that are that good. Uh, if I had, I will say this: if I had to do it all over again. Knowing what I know now, I would hit half as many balls and chip and putt the time that I had left from hitting all those balls over the years. Because you were born with a DNA to swing the golf club. You can improve a little bit, but you're only going to improve so much from tee to green. You score around the green. You score from 80 yards in. And is that sexy? Is that macho? No. That's not the sexy part of the game. The sexy part of the game is hitting that two iron up in the air or driving into the fairway. or, But improving around the greens is where we'll all improve. And think about it. If you improve, if say you're going to play a dozen tournaments this summer and you improve one shot per tournament, think about what that'll do for your scoring average and for your place in those tournaments over the course of a year and then 10 years. So mm-hmm. I absolutely believe that because nobody has ever won a tournament hitting the golf ball from tee to green. Oh, it makes the game easier and you can have more looks at birdies, yes. But you still have to make putts and nobody's going to hit 72 greens in regulation. You still have to get it up and down. And those up and downs carry the round forward. Psychologically, we want to birdie every hole. We know we can't. But the feeling of walking off the green after a good up and in out of the green side bunker, or maybe the heavy rough short left. There's such a feeling of accomplishment there 
versus hitting a five iron and, and, and making a 10 foot putt. And that's a hell of an accomplishment as well. But you get what I'm saying is that around the greens, baby, let me tell you, if I had to do it all over again, I would do just that. Well, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't, uh, you know, wear yourself out and, and, you know, we see a lot of, in- oh, yeah. we see a lot of injuries now. I, I'm, I really concerns me, you know, watching, it's great to have speed, right? But you're the wrist issues that these long players are having, you know, DeChambeau, uh, Tony Finau's had injuries, Cameron Champ. I mean, that it's, it's a little concerning to me as a golf fan and, and as a, you know, just a lover of this game. Uh, speed is great, but you can you got to be able to you know maintain your your body it seems like these this ex, this more of this explosive maybe shorter career as opposed to a the longevity yeah you're right it's it's you know i, I first can't believe there's not more in wrist injuries in the game of golf than there really are mm-hmm. uh, when you think about these little joints and bones down there beating the ground every time you swing a golf club but be that as it may i the clubs have allowed the players and even your society have allowed single digit handicap players to swing harder and harder because uh, the sweet spot on both the irons and the driver are so much bigger than they used to be. It allows you to hit it, swing harder, and hit the ball relatively straight, the less spinny ball, the same thing. So that in itself uh, can, can cause more injuries. Swinging so hard, DeChambeau is a great example because DeChambeau does it with strength. He does it with force. He doesn't do it with motion. Mm-hmm. When you hit a, when you have speed with motion, because you're 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", like these guys are now, with the high arc and, and, and creating speed with the 45-inch driver, that's doing it through motion. DeChambeau does it through weights. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he's putting a lot of stress on himself back, hips, and wrist, shoulders, everything. And to me, I'm not going to say his injuries right now are from swinging hard, but it's it's certainly coincidental. Yeah. Whereas you got Dustin Johnson, who doesn't look like he swings hard, but creates enormous speed. Um, you have uh, Justin Thomas, yeah. has a high hands, high arc, very limber, thin man, does it with motion. So you get what I'm trying to say yeah. is that uh, – I could go out and swing as hard as I absolutely could every time, but two things going to happen. I'm going to hurt like hell, and I'm not going to come close to hitting fairways. And that's where the game has changed. Yeah, it's 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 pretty remarkable what all these players are doing. And, uh, yeah, we will, uh, we'll see how it all pans out this week at the U.S. Open at the Country Club. Uh, Curtis Strange, thank you so much for being on the Silver Club podcast and just being a part and sharing all your great wisdom. Well, I appreciate you having me, Steve, and it's a it's a great game. We love it. You know, I'm I'm to the point now where it's you know I still think about it, and my mind has a shot in in my mind, and the body doesn't want to react. My brother and I still talk every other day about it, about staying down and through. We're 67 years old, and the hardest part of the golf swing is staying down and through, staying in your posture down and through because it hurts, hmm. and. He complains all the time. I complain all the time, but it's just, it's, it's mother nature catching up. Um, if I figure that out, I'll call you back. But, uh, <laughs> I, I still think about it. And I still think every time I go to the practice tee, it's going to work out better and it does. But uh, th- thanks for having me so much. Uh, and everybody enjoy the U.S. Open. It's been a great week this week at, at the Country Club. 
Big thanks to Curtis Strange for joining us today on the Silver Club Podcast for U.S. Open Week. What a memory that was back in 1988, capturing the first of his back-to-back U.S. Opens. And thank you, our listeners, for downloading and subscribing all of our previous 59 episodes. We've had some great ones, and this one proves to be just another one of those. Hope you all enjoy U.S. Open Week, and we'll look forward to bringing you another Silver Club podcast real soon.